Amen. There I am. Coming through. Yeah, indeed. Um, just the words we've just been hearing all have a very simple thread, common theme. The simplicity of the gospel, and it always comes back to a relationship with Christ. Your internal struggles. It's all right, you're sorting out the sound, don't worry. Uh, the, our internal struggles, it's always rooted in Christ as being the answer. The, the struggles of the world around us, like Ukraine and so on, it's always rooted in Christ as the answer. You know, when uh, kids come home from Sunday school or from, yeah, from trailblazers, it is now. So, what did you learn about Jesus? That's what I always used to say when I came home from Sunday school. Mum and Dad, what did you learn about Jesus? Well, actually, it's not wrong. The answer should always be Jesus, shouldn't it? And today's passage just helps reinforce that. It's a simple gospel message that we always need to hear time and time again. If you think you've heard the gospel, you should never stop listening to the gospel. Uh, So Luke chapter 19 really helps us with that today. If you've got your Bibles or your phones with you, it'll come up on the screen in a minute as well, hopefully. It's just the first 10 verses of Luke chapter 19 we're going to read together. A familiar, verse, uh, familiar passage to many of us, I'm sure. Um, Robert Karras is a Bible common, uh, commentator, he writes Bible commentaries. And he once said, in Luke's gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. And it's, it's true, it's very good. Today, we find Jesus heading to a meal. Um, but this is a meal where the host isn't even expecting him. He doesn't know he's going to have Jesus for dinner. Um, This man, Zacchaeus, as he's called, um, he doesn't know he's about to host a dinner party with the greatest VIP in the universe. And surprises are in store for this this man of small stature. He's famous for, isn't he? He gets mentioned in the story. He's a man of small stature who is hoping to get a peek at someone he's been hearing all about, but is not dreaming for a minute that he's going to, this is going to lead to the most life-transforming of moments for him. Um, so this passage, this is about Zacchaeus, who is a man of small stature, but he is transformed by a person of great stature. And that's what we're going to celebrate and land on in a short while. So let's just read the first 10 verses of Luke 19. It says this. Uh, he, Jesus, entered Jericho... And he was passing through. And there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small of stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, Hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they, the crowd, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today... Salvation has come to this house, since he also is the son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Now, at first, following the lines of this passage, Jesus is passing through Jericho. Zacchaeus wants to see Jesus, so he takes the initiative. That's what it all looks like. It seems to be that Zacchaeus is the one who gets the ball rolling on this relationship. He wants to see Jesus. But he is too small, 
so he climbs a tree, and so on. He's the one taking the initiative, right? Taking the first steps. Well, in some ways, that is true. But there's a lovely pattern to how this all unfolds, where we realise it's not Zacchaeus doing all the legwork, actually. It's Jesus. Because the three things we're going to look at, just briefly, for a few minutes each, briefly. Firstly, Jesus knew he was there. Jesus knew he was there and picked him out of the crowd. Secondly, this proves that Jesus knew he was there. Jesus knew his name. But thirdly also, it says that Jesus wants to dwell with him, and he wants to dwell with him today. And that's the three areas we're going to look at. Firstly, that Jesus knew he was there. Secondly, that Jesus knew his name. Thirdly, that he wanted to dwell with him. First of all, he knew that Jesus was there because he knew that Zacchaeus was there. Jesus takes the major initiative here. Zacchaeus, being a man of small stature, he wants to get a glimpse of Jesus, so he's found a way to do that. He's climbed up this sycamore tree. These sycamore trees, it's a sycamore fig tree, officially. It's like a short oak tree. It's got this um, squat trunk and these wide branches. It's kind of low but wide. Um, So it's quite easy for a small man to climb and to give him a slightly higher vantage point above the heads of everyone else. But it's Jesus who instigates the relationship, though, because it doesn't say that Jesus noted a man waving in the corner of his eye. Zacchaeus had a big placard, you know, like in the crowd, Harry Styles, I'm your greatest fan, or whatever it is. Taylor Swift, I love you. He's not trying to catch his attention, he's just trying to see him. It, It says, when he, Jesus, came to the place, he looked up and spoke to him. He's picked him out. Now, we do need to want to see Jesus. Ask, seek, knock. We do have to seek him out. There is a place for us to want to do that. We do have a choice whether we seek him out or not. But he's the one who makes it possible in the first place. Psalm 139 verse 16 says, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. He's written our days before they've long ever happened. He knows, he's ordained our days, he knows our path, he knows our lives, he knows what's ahead of us. He's already written our days and he knows where we'll be at any given moment. Um, Who's got Find My iPhone on their phones or some kind of tracking app on their phone if you're Android or whatever? Yeah, yeah, it's great, isn't it? I use it a lot, I'm always seeing where my girls are. It sounds a bit stalky, but they're my girls and I want to know they're okay. Normally, because when they go shopping, we'll be back for five. My, my wife, Jenny, her grasp of how linear time works isn't her greatest skill, and she will happily put her hand up to that. I'm allowed to, I'm allowed to say that. I'm allowed to say that. So when she says she'll be back for five, I'm like, okay, love, we'll see what happens. But, <laughs> so what I like to do, I like to see whether they're on, they're on their way back from Canterbury yet, are they stuck in traffic? Because then I know, I know with Jenny, with her, which is, you know, as you know, Jenny with her back problems and stuff like that, I like to have a hot water bottle ready, because I know she's been on her feet for a few hours, or... I want to have a cup of tea ready for her, or I know when to get the dinner on. There's things like that as well. Uh, when Amy went to her first concert in, at Wembley with her boyfriend a few years ago, they were getting the train. First time they'd done the train and the tube on their own. I, I did not put my phone down. Where are they now? Which station are they at? Are they still moving? But I want to check they're okay, and I want to re- prepare for their return home. Um, 
God has his, <laughs> he's the God of the universe and he sees all things. He has his, he, he's able to have his Find My iPhone connected for all of us at any given moment. He knows exactly where we are at any given moment and he knows where, we'll, we, where we will be long before we've ever planned to go anywhere. He knows our location all the time. It's in order not to stalk us or to catch us out. It's because he wants to, he casts his caring eye over us and he wants to prepare for our coming home. He wants the best for us. And so, of course, Jesus, God himself, he knows exactly where Zacchaeus is. He knows exactly where he is without being told or without being waved at. But he also, and there's the other thing now, he also knows not just where he is, he knows who he is. Not just a figure in the crowd. He knows exactly who he is. And that's the second thing. He knew his name. It says, he looks up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. He doesn't go, you there, what's your name? You boy. It literally goes, Zacchaeus. Imagine Zacchaeus' shock. I was just just up this tree, I just wanted to get a glimpse of him, and suddenly he's calling me by my name. How does he know that? Again, it's because he's God, and he cares. God himself says to Jeremiah, in Jeremiah chapter 1, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before, not while I was making you, before I formed you in your, in, in your mother's womb, I knew you. I love that. He says to Moses in Exodus chapter 33, I know you by name. And then he's, uh, God says to Paul in Acts chapter, I made it small that bit, Acts chapter 18, when there's amidst great opposition, he's saying to Paul, you know, don't give up. Because he said, do not be afraid, but go on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. No one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. Even before people become his people, he knows them by name and he's got them pinpointed. He wants them. He knows your name. Jesus knows your name. It doesn't matter who you are or what you think of yourself or what other people think of yourself. He is still interested. And he knows you. You may not think you're anything special, but he still definitely noticed you. I mean, look at the kind of person this is. This is a chief tax collector, Zacchaeus here. Tax collectors, boo, they're bad. He's a chief one. He's in charge of them all. You remember what I was saying a few weeks ago about tax collectors, that um, people who collect taxes have never been particularly popular in any era or society generally, Um, but particularly these ones. These tax men were uh, Jews working for the invading Romans. So not only for them was there the the stigma of uh, people begrudgingly having to hand their taxes over to these people. They're well-earned wages and you want a bit more, do you? That's bad enough. But these people were working for the Romans. They were working for the enemy. They were turncoats, really. And yet Luke, beautifully, throughout his gospel, he always has this wonderful tendency to turn um, societies and ours, to be honest, our, our understanding of status and worth in society, he likes to turn it on its head. Um, so where uh, rich men were generally, and still are, considered worthy and tax collectors were not, Luke t- likes to flip that to portray rich men in a bad light and tax collectors positively. Like, you're missing the point of what it means to be worthy as a human or what it means to be good and what it means to be bad. You're missing it. And he does it again here. Luke just wants to ensure that we don't see people through man's eyes, but we see people through God's eyes. We don't see ourselves through man's eyes. 
we see ourselves through God's eyes. The observers, the crowd, they're looking at things through man's eyes. They're saying, hey, Jesus, he's got to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Not like us. He's a sinner. Why doesn't he come to my house? I'm better than him. I'm not a turncoat. I don't collect other people's money. That's what they're thinking, isn't it? They're not like, well, let's find out Zacchaeus' story first. Let's find out the context. They're not interested in that. They're just like, he's a tax collector. He's a bad one. That's what they're doing. They're looking at things through their own human filter, their own lens. And so the point we need to grasp here is that our human metrics of what makes someone good or bad is never correct. We never get that right. Always wonky. I mean, yes, we can see someone performing evil acts and we can rightly say they are not a good person. We can say that, can't we? That way around is quite straightforward. But to say someone is a good person is not as simple a statement as it sounds. Because, I mean, ultimately, what defines good? What does that word even mean? Just because someone commits good acts, does that necessarily mean they are wholly good? Really? I mean, if you, you take a pint of water, and it's a pint of water, if it's purely that, it's purely water. It's pure, untainted, okay? But if you take one single pipette of poison and drop it in there, that pint of water is no longer entirely pure or entirely safe. Okay? It might be colourless, it might be odourless, it may look pure, and it could be diluted still to such a degree. I, I did the maths. Here, yeah, maths boy. One pipette drop is 0.05 mils, and in a pint of water, that means it is 0.00009% poison. Would you still drink it? No, of course not. You still wouldn't drink it. It's still categorically impure and categorically potentially dangerous. Yeah, but it's mostly water. He's mostly good. You see the point? We're all tainted, even if it's by the slightest degree. None of us are perfect. So even if you think you are generally a good person, there are things you've still done that you wouldn't want anyone knowing about. There are still thoughts you have that you'd rather no one ever heard out loud. It doesn't matter how much darkness you have or haven't dabbled in, you still have. None of us are perfect. None of us are entirely good. No one is except Jesus himself. He's the only one. And so this is all, it's big language, but this is the very reason why Jesus says to his own disciples... His own followers, in Luke chapter 11, he says, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children. So they're doing good things, giving good gifts to their children. He still calls them evil. But if, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? He calls them his own disciples who are doing good things. He still calls them evil. Why? Because that word evil, it means derelict. It means you're prone to ruin. Without his aid, we are doomed to spiral towards darkness rather than light. That's our gravitational pull. Somewhere at some point, we'll, 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 be, we'll, we'll prove the tainting in us again. We still keep veering there, don't we? We can't resist it hard as we try. And so, coming back to today's scenario with Zacchaeus, 
It can easily seem to the casual observers at the time that Jesus is picking the wrong person. They've said that. What's he doing going to his house? He's a sinner. It looks like he's picking the wrong person, but the point is this. Jesus never picks the right person. Think about it. Jesus always picks the wrong one. Because <laughs> that's all of us. We are never right, right enough, none of us. Like that pint of water. It's, it's only a little bit still tainted. But he wants us anyway. Regardless of who you are, he still wants you and he knows you. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so, yes, there is a line for how good you have to be in order to be right standing before God. But that line is so far over there, we can never, ever reach it. No matter how hard we try to be good enough, we never are. We never will be. And this isn't because... God's a spiteful meanie and he's just put this big rule in place that we're never achieved. Go on then, try and step over that line. Try and reach that. Go on. He's not like that. Our friend Bridget Bree, she says God is not a meanie. It's a brilliant phrase. So true. It's because he is so complete and so good and so perfect that he can't just ignore that slightest stain in us or even on our attempts to be good either. The Bible tells us, Isaiah 64 verse 6 says that even our attempts at being good are still tainted by our motivations. <laughs> even our good acts are still tainted. They're never entirely pure. And so, Tim Keller, who's a pastor in America in New York City, sums up the gospel this way. He says it brilliantly. He says, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet, at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. So I'll read that again. The, the gospel is this, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe, yet at the, same, at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. God knows us. He knows that we are broken and still he has given of himself so completely that we might be made whole. And that truth to step into is what brings us freedom and brings him glory. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 said, Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. We have not earned a jot of what he gives us. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. May we be a people whose hearts sing, not because of who we are, but because of who he is. He knows you and he wants you. Which brings me just from the last point. He wanted to dwell with Zacchaeus. 
It wasn't like, I'm getting a bit hungry, I need somewhere to go, he'll do. I want to dwell with you. He says those words, he says, I must stay at your house today. That must, the word die, D-E-I, die. That word must stay, it's, it's necessary that I stay at your house today. Not any moment, let me know when you're free. It is absolutely necessary that I stay at your house today. He doesn't want to waste a minute. I love it. Jesus has this intense compulsion in him to dwell with Zacchaeus now. Let's not waste a minute. Forget this crowd. You and me, we're doing this. I love it. It's this compulsion that's born out of his deep love for Zacchaeus. It's a compulsion that's born out of his deep love for you and me. A love so deep that he finds it irresistible and he wants to dwell with you now. Even in John chapter 6, verse 44, where Jesus says, No one can come to, to, come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. That word drawing, the Greek word there, it means to drag or to impel. I want you. I'm drawing you. It's not him forcing us against our will. We can still refuse him. We can still ignore him, shrug him off, decide we know better, say no thank you. But his heart yearns for us his heart yearns for you so much, he will move, he has moved, heaven and earth to make it possible. That's how much he wants you. And so it's not just simply a mutual agreement. Do you want me? Uh, yeah, all right. It's not just a mutual agreement. Rather, it's, it's God wanting us so much and desiring our reconciliation with him so much that he impels us. He yearns for us. He knows who and where we are, and he wants us despite all our faults. He wants you. And so as David was saying about a restored relationship, maybe today you do know Christ, but your relationship with him has wavered and drifted. He wants you now. He wants you today. He wants to dwell with you. He, he's, it is necessary to dwell with you again now. Let's not waste a minute. You feel that, that heart burn, that invitation. It's like, come on, what are we waiting for? He wants you now. There's an urgency. I must stay at your house today. Don't resist him any longer. If you've wavered or you've wandered, he wants you back and he wants you now. And if you've never known him, maybe this is all brand new to you, still getting your head around it. You've never known Christ like this never experienced him dwelling with you. Don't miss out any longer. We'll love to pray with you. Let's talk it through. Come and meet him. You can meet him today. Don't put it off. Now, we don't know exactly what happened around that table. We don't know how the rest of the conversation went when Jesus does go to dinner. But what we do know is this. There was a private, intimate moment between holy God and lowly man. That table became sacred. There's one great God who is giving time and attention to someone whose society ignores. And Zacchaeus himself has been accepted as he is and then drawn into this life with a capital L, one of utter transformation and renewal. So much so, it says Zacchaeus received him joyfully and his unrestrained generosity as a result and not just to those in need as he says but also especially to those he's defrauded so I'll give them back fourfold 
It's not just I'll give them back what I owe them. I'll give them back fourfold. That's not a prescriptive thing. If you become a Christian, you've got to work out who you defrauded and give back four times or anything like that. You're missing the point. It's not prescriptive, it's, it's descriptive. It's just showing the natural outworking of someone who has recognised their salvation. They've received the greatest gift and they just want to give in response to it. So if you, I mean, if you truly meet with Jesus, you'll be stirred to action appropriate to where you're at. Put it that way. Genuine salvation brings genuine action. I've, I've known people who've said... They love Jesus. Who said they'd become a Christian? It's not seen any change. There'd be fruit to it. True following of Jesus Christ, living life his way, letting him speak to the parts of our hearts that we'd prefer to pretend don't even exist. Letting him speak to that and bring change. That's what brings true transformation and you'll see it on the outside. And so like Zacchaeus, for example, if we have the heart of God, we have his heart for people in need, whether that's financial need, like, like here, or emotional need, mental health, and so on like that. We just have a heart for people to pass on what God has given us. So it's not about copying a righteous act as such. It's about as much as copying his example of seeking Jesus out. I can't see him. How can I see him? But in doing so, Zacchaeus discovered the one who already knew where he was, who already knew who he was, who already had put an appointment in his own diary. Jesus in his calendar had already decided he was going to Zacchaeus's for dinner. He knew what Zacchaeus needed. So let's be those people too. Amen? Let's be those people too. Spiritually speaking, we are all of small stature. But Jesus is the one of greatest stature. So let's be seeking him out. This new year, it's the 1st of January. It's an arbitrary thing. It's a name and a number. It's January the 1st. What is that? It's just something we made up and came up with a calendar. Just a number. But it's a great opportunity, as ever, to go, do you know what? I'm drawing a line in the sand. Help me to start afresh. Help me to press in. Help me to seek you out, only to discover you've been seeking me out all along. That's where true transformation lies. That's where his glory lies. That's where our renewal lies. It's a new year. Let's seek renewal in him. Would you like to stand? Let me just pray for us. Lord, we just stand before you as people with nothing to bring to the table other than ourselves to discover that all you want from us is ourselves we're here Lord we offer ourselves up to you and we say thank you thank you for who you are Thank you for what you do. Thank you for what you've done. Thank you for what you are doing. Thank you for what you will do. Knowing that you are unchangeably good. You're always seeking us out. You're always wanting more of us. Because it's in your nature, your character. You are love. God is love. 
You can't help yourself but reach forward to us all the time, even when we're not looking, even when we're facing the other way. You're reaching for us out of your goodness and your mercy. Thank you. Lord, let us never dare be the people who turn our faces away from you again. Help us to reflect on the past, but help us to press into the future with you. Not anchored in things we've done, not anchored in our dreams for the future, but just anchored in you, rooted in you, the one who is always seeking us out, knows us by name and knows what we need. Let us not lose sight of that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.